Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Inseparable Operations. The Doctrine of Inseparable Operations. Why is it important? What's the significance of it? I guess I, the first thing I would say is, with regard to, to inseparable operations, is that it's just a consistent application of our theology proper as we speak and think about the divine persons and the works of God. All right, if I could just sum up the significance, the importance, you know, the, 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 the placement of the doctrine of inseparable operations, that's, that's what I would say. Um, of course, there are better authors. Uh, those, there are those who've, who've gone before us who have said it much better, and I would I would encourage you. And in fact, we're going to look at some uh, some some source material here in a moment that I think will be helpful. Uh, but what I would like to do is I would like to turn to John five seventeen, and the reason I'd like to turn to John five seventeen is 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 because I think that. When we look at passages like this, we tend to we tend to read them with our with our own you know truncated assumptions, and and we blow past them. We form a real quick conclusion about what it means, and we blow past it. And the conclusion may be true, but it may not be the whole truth. And so for years, you know, I'd re- I, I would read John five seventeen when Jesus would say. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. You know, I might read that as as our Lord saying, according to his human nature, he's imitating his father by working. And this is supposed to be a vindication of why he would be doing these things on the Sabbath. Something like that. Um, and and while it's it's not untrue that there is an imitation of God in the person of the Son, according to his human nature. That's not all the, that's not the full extent of the text. You can tell it's not the full extent of the text if you look at the context. So, if you back up and you look at, at the beginning of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5 is an account of a miracle. Um... There's a, a, a man who had an infirmity. He'd had it for 38 years. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? Uh, the man, of course, uh, you know, answers in a roundabout way, positively, yes, he wants to be made well. Um, and in, in verse 8, Jesus tells him, he says, rise up, you know, rise, take up your bed and, and walk. And it's in an imperative, so it's a commandment. Our, our Lord is instantiating an authority by commanding this man to pick up his bed and walk, following the miracle. The Jews come along, and, and by the way, every time we read of a miracle, you know, what, what we would want to say is that a miracle is a testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. That's not all a miracle is. Uh, there is uh, typological significance in miracles insofar as the, the physical healings look to something deeper, a, 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 a deeper cleansing and healing. 
that our Lord affords us, uh, which is ultimately cons- consists in the forgiveness of sins, regeneration, renewal, and so on. Uh, so remember that about miracles. It's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, namely the Son of God. Um, our Lord has issued a commandment to this man following the miracle, take up your bed and walk. It's the Sabbath. We learn that in the latter portion of, of verse 9. And then in verse 10, the Jewish religious elites come and they attempt to... Um, rebuke the man for carrying his bed. And the man says, uh, the guy who healed me told me to take my bed. I don't know who it is, but he told me, he commanded me to take, you know, to take up my bed and walk. And then they asked him, who was the man? And, and the one who was healed didn't know because Jesus had, uh, disappeared from view at that, at that point, there's a lot of people around and so on. Afterwards, Jesus finds the man in the temple um, and tells the man, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And this is the idea here that this miracle pointed to something deeper. Yes, the man's physical ailment is has been obviated, um, but there's something yet more important at play than just having a physical malady fixed. Um and so the man departs, and they and and he tells the Jews he spreads the, spreads the word and says it was Jesus who made me well and so on. So the Jews come to Jesus and they persec- they pursue him, they persecute him, they 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 desired to kill him. And uh, Jesus answers the people in verse seventeen. He says, "My Father has been working until now, and I have been working." Now. You, you read something like John 5:17 and your your perhaps your immediate conclusion that you form right off the bat is well our Lord's just saying that he imitates his father and uh, and that's fine and then we go on reading and we don't connect very well verse 18 with verse 17 because what happens in verse 18 is a a shift in the approach of the Jewish religious elites. So our Lord issues the statement found in John 5, 17, and then in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. They already wanted to kill him. They already desired to to get rid of him. We see that here in verse 16. But, But down here in verse 18, they seek all the more to kill him. Why? Well, that ex- that that the why is explained by this statement right here and then and, and and the way in which the the religious elites understood that statement and it says he not only broke the sabbath they thought he broke the sabbath they he, jesus our lord didn't really break the law of god um he broke the cultural Sabbath. Let's put it that way. So he broke the culturally conditioned Sabbath, not the uh, unadulterated Sabbath uh, given in the law. Our Lord was perfect in all things with regard to the law. So, um, but they they wanted to kill him all the more, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And where does Jesus call? God his Father. He does so here. My Father has been working until now, 
and I have been working, right? So this statement adds enough weight to the circumstance that it changes the approach of the Jewish religious elites such that now they seek all the more to kill our Lord. Now, what you find on later on is that there is an identity uh, between father and son. Of course, they're not the same person. They're distinguished uh, in, in terms of their, uh, their personal or peculiar properties, we would say. But they're, they're, they're identified in terms of essence. Uh, the son and the father are of the same essence. They're not different essences. And uh, they're not different beings. They are the same thing or the same what. Namely, they are the same God. Though they are distinguished personally one from another. And what you find here in, uh, in the latter part of, uh, or the middle part, rather, of chapter 5, is a, an identity, an essential identity between father and son. Because the, the, the language here is, you know, if you worship the son, you're worshiping the father. If you worship the father, you worship the son. If you worship father and son, you worship the Holy Spirit. Again, they are the same what? The same being, the same essence. So what you do to one, so to speak, you can't do anything to God, technically speaking. Uh, God is not patient, and we do not act upon him. Um, but what you, let's say it this way, what you do toward one person, you do toward the others, because they're of the same essence. This is the point that Jesus is making throughout the, throughout the remainder of the text. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. All right, so notice the language of doing here in verse 19 that, of course, should bring our minds back. It should snap our minds back to verse 17. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. And that's clearly what the text says, verse 19. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For whatever the Father does, the Son does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So there you have a clear Identification between father and son with relation to the work of resurrection. They work that work, that one work, right? So their operation as it regards the resurrection is inseparable. The father's not doing something other than the son is doing. They're working the same work. And I would, I, I would, I would, I would, I would uh, submit to you that verse 17 is getting at that reality, and that that contributes to one of the reasons why the Jewish religious elites sought all the more to kill him. Because he's making himself equal with the Father, but he's doing so in virtue of identifying their works. So what the Father does, I do. Uh, and and, and that, that means that they must be of one essence. They're the same God. Um, verse 22 goes on, "...for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son." that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, so clearly what you have in that case 
is you have uh, an identification in essence, right? And of course, this is applied in relation to the operations of God. What I, what, what I do toward the Son, I do toward the Father. If I honor the Son, I honor the Father. If I don't honor the Son, I don't honor the Father. And the same applies, of course, to the Spirit. Now, let, let's... Uh, that's, that's my, uh, you know, survey of the passage. And uh, that's my uh, sort of... Uh, we didn't really get into the Greek. I don't think there's really much to uncover in the Greek especially if we're just talking about verse 17. Um, but what about the other expositors? What about other expositors that, that have come before us? How have they read John 5.17? Let's begin with William Ames, who was a significant um, Puritan divine in the 17th century. In the marrow of theology, uh, and to support this statement, he cites John 5, 17 and verse 19 as well. He says this, their co-working is, uh, or their co-working is that whereby they do inseparably work the same thing. For all external actions are common to all the persons. This is a clear statement in, in, John's, in John 5, 19. For whatever the Son does, or for whatever He does, the Father, the Son does in like manner. Um, that's an identity of operation. It cannot be according to the human nature of the Son. It must be according to the divine nature. Because it's an identity of operation, uh, an operation that, that only God Himself works. And... Uh, and then, of course, you, you have an identity of operation with regard to the giving of life, everlasting life, uh, seen, of course, in regeneration, culminating in resurrection in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. It's, an, it, it's a clear statement of inseparable operations um, in, in John 5. And I think, the, I think the Puritan divine saw that. We'll move on here to John Gill says of verse 17, that is, he's working in conjunction with him, the Son working in, in conjunction with the Father, as a coefficient cause in the works of providence, in the government of the world, in upholding all things in it, in bearing up the pillars of the earth, in holding things together, and sustaining all creatures. Verse 18, John Gill says, uh, with regard to verse 18, uh, he says, by ascribing the same operations to himself as to his father. The Jewish religious elites rightly understood him that he asserted his equality with the father. All right, and moving beyond that, John Calvin, this isn't particularly on John 5.17, um, or rather, let's see. Yeah, this is on John 5.17. There's another place in his institutes where he he doesn't treat inseparable operations extensively, uh, but he does, I think, make reference to it. I think there's a, a case to be made that he makes reference to it. Um, but Calvin says, commenting on John 5, 7, 5.18, I believe, 
He made himself equal to God when he claimed for himself continuance in working. So in other words, he's, it's the same continuance in working. And Christ is so far from denying this that he confirms it more distinctly. This refutes the madness of the Arians who acknowledged that Christ is God, but did not think that he is equal to the Father. As if in the one and simple essence of God, there could be any inequality. So there in Calvin, you have a soft reference to inseparable operations, and you have the doctrine of divine simplicity mentioned in the same breath. What about Augustine? And Augustine is the last one I'll reference, and then I'll go ahead and, and wrap up. Augustine says of inseparable operations, he says, for the union of persons in the Trinity, again, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the doctrine of inseparable operations is just an application of the, of the unity of, of essence. And Augustine says, for the union of persons in the Trinity is in the Catholic faith set forth and believed and by a few holy and blessed ones understood to be so inseparable that whatever is done by the Trinity must be regarded as being done by the Father and by the Son and by the Holy Spirit together, and that nothing is done by the Father which is not also done by the Son and by the Holy Spirit. In other words, they work the same work. And nothing done by the Holy Spirit, which is not also done by the Father and by the Son. And nothing done by the Son, which is not also done by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. Quite an extensive statement on inseparable operations. I like how he says at the beginning of that, of that statement, he says, For the union of persons in the Trinity is in the Catholic faith, set forth and believed. And this is what I want to end with. I think, I think a lot of our discussions about theology proper, and one of the reasons why we are tempted to opt for other than orthodox solutions to what we perceive to be theological issues in theology proper is because we expect to understand everything. Um, but what Augustine says here is, is profound, and I think it's a notion that needs to be recovered. He says, For the union of persons in the Trinity is in the Catholic faith set forth and believed. He didn't say understood. It's set forth and believed by all. This is an article of the Catholic faith. Catholic meaning all Christians believe this. It's set forth and believed. It's confessed. And by a few, few, holy and blessed ones, it's understood. Right? So what he's saying is, is that the majority of people are not going to pencil through and, 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 and obtain a thorough grasp of inseparable opera operations. I put myself in that in that camp. And, but he leaves room for those more learned ones um, to have a more thorough understanding, not a comprehension, but a more thorough understanding of a doc of a doctrine like the doctrine of inseparable oper inseparable operations. Later on. Augustine goes on to relate inseparable operations with the Incarnation and says, this is a very difficult question. It's a good question. It's difficult. And he goes on to speak on that for a while. But um, it, it is a difficult doctrine. But here's the thing. It's difficult, but it must be confessed, right? E even if you cannot understand it, you must confess it because it's part of the Christian faith. And, and be patient, right, with, with, with yourself and your own intellectual limits. 
And don't go looking for a solution that just seems easier for you to, 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 to kind of eat, right? Rather, <clears throat> be patient and studious. Patiently studious. And, um, and prayerful and obviously doing theology in community and read good books. <clears throat> don't go for the easy way out. And I think a lot of times what happens, and this happens in pastoral theology a lot, is you'll have pastors who say things like, well, the doctrine of inseparable operations has no pastoral import. No, actually, I think it does. Uh, and, I think, and I think if you want to see its pastoral import, you look at John 5, and you look at how our Lord applies it. I mean, think of how pastorally significant the notion of honoring God is. And look at how our Lord ties a religious act, honoring, in with his unity of essence with the Father and the fact that he does the same works as the Father. Um, and these works that he does uh, as a result of being of the same essence of the Father ought to lead us to a profound sense of thankfulness and, and a doxological appreciation for him. It can work in assurance. Soteriology can be buttressed and fortified and, and, and grounded in this. Um, whatever one person of the Trinity does, the whole Trinity does. And I think one very basic way to say it, and, and, and a very pastoral pastorally articulate way to say it, would be to say that the whole Trinity, if you're in Christ, the whole Trinity is for you. The whole Trinity is for you. And the whole Trinity is working for your good. Right? And, and, and you can, of course, you can break out all the works. I mean, that's the summary statement that I think is very pastorally applicable. But, of course, you can start breaking out all the different things, all the enumerating the works of God, from creation to the work of redemption, to all the, you know, uh, all the things that God does within the work of redemption, you know, from uh, <clears throat> the effectual call uh, to the, uh, you know, to justification, to, uh, to sanctification, and so on. Is it the whole Trinity that sanctifies me? Does the whole Trinity work the work of sanctification? Yes. Does the whole Trinity work the work of my redemption? Yes. Does the whole Trinity, will the whole Trinity be involved in the work of my resurrection? Yes. Okay, so it is pastorally applicable. Is it a difficult doctrine? Yes, absolutely. But difficult doctrines are revealed in the scriptures for our consideration and our contemplation and for the good of God's people. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, don't want this to be too long, but uh, consider the doctrine of inseparable operations. Thoroughly historical thoroughly biblical. I don't think you can get away from John 5 without it. And thoroughly pastoral. God bless.